Bundling home and car insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? They may drop little hints like... Beautiful day out. Even more beautiful since we saved by bundling our home and car insurance with GEICO. Or... Yard work is hard. Much harder than bundling with GEICO, which was easy. Or it may be even subtler, like... Speaking of burgers, we bundled our home and car insurance with GEICO and saved a bunch of money. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. Ever wish for fuller lips? With Juvederm Lip Fillers, a licensed specialist can help you get the customized look you've been wanting. Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC can give your lips that boost of volume you've been wanting. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Welcome back to Appod Latcha. I'm your host, Chuck Cora, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Big John Eisner, King of the Grill. John, how you doing this evening? I'm doing pretty well. I think uh, I think we've got a pretty pretty fun episode coming up, and uh, I know that you're chomping at the bit. So, I mean, I, I say we jump chomped. in. We we got to jump into this, Chuck. I mean, but you know, before we get into what we're actually going to be talking about today, I am excited because we're actually doing a new segment at the beginning of this episode, and hopefully at the beginning of every episode, and it's going to be Appalachian of the Week. Now, we realize that there are a lot of issues that we talk about where things aren't going as well as we'd like for them to be in Appalachia. Or we're, we're often focused on issues that maybe are negative or that we're pushing back against criticism of, of the region. And we realize that, and it's important to talk about that. But it's also, I think we decided important to talk about the things that are going well, and more importantly, the people that are representing Appalachia well and that are doing good things for the region and in the region. And so John is going to lead us off this week with our very first inaugural Appalachian of the Week. Chuck, I think that was a perfect way to explain why we're doing this. Um, I'm excited. I think that this is going to be great. And I think these people deserve recognition. And that's one reason why we're doing it. This week's Appalachian of the Week actually goes to Travis Milton. And you may not have heard the name. I didn't know the name uh, until I had read about this gentleman. And I got to say, the stuff that he's doing in the culinary world and representing Appalachia is insane. This guy went, he had to leave uh, Appalachia, he's from Virginia, he had to leave um, to go and get an education and to go to some of the most famous kitchens in the world. He's worked at places in D.C., San Francisco, among several others, and decided that instead of going and following this career in the culinary world into these large restaurants, he was going to move back to Virginia and he was going to start his own restaurant there uh, where they focused on modern Appalachian dishes which 
Chuck, I don't know about you, but I'm already about to get in my car and drive to Virginia because these all they sound delicious. And I only hope that he has a pepperoni roll, but that's that's just you know me. I'm assuming he's just opening up a Tudor's biscuit world. <laughs> well, Tudor's is amazing. I mean, I will say kidding, that. Though, I will kidding. say that, but but I'm gonna guarantee Travis is is on an, another level. Travis has a facility where he has some of the best produce in the area. He also has some of the best livestock, and he makes sure that it's all sustainable. Um, he is working to put Appalachian on the map through the culinary world, which we don't really see a whole lot. And if we do have chefs from Appalachia, they tend to leave. Um, and so I think what Travis is doing is something that should be highlighted, and we should thank him uh, for putting Appalachia first, even over his career. I mean, I'm sure he's going to be super successful, but he could have done other things, but instead he decided to come home, start a great restaurant, and I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to trying it. That's a that's a great story, and I think it actually, uh, most people probably don't think about food when they think about Appalachia, so hopefully after reading this and after seeing more of his stuff and people like him, they will, because it's delicious, and God bless the pepperoni roll. Well, pepperoni rolls aside, we're, we got a much deeper, much uh, much more, um, shall I say, less salivating than pepperoni rolls? Or maybe more salivating. What we're going to be talking about, John, as you know, a certain former vice president of the United States of America made some comments uh, about coal miners. Some may have heard them, some may have not. And anybody that did knew that this was going to pique our interest. We've made jokes about this before in jest because we realize that it's such a misguided thing to say. But John, Joe Biden, he uh, he walked into that old coal miners and teaching him to code trope. My favorite. <sighs> my favorite. Yeah, you know, it had to happen. It had to happen. I'm, I'm surprised it was Joe, but it had to happen. So he was at a campaign event in Derry, New Hampshire. And for all you Stephen King fans out there, a little Easter egg, Derry. Um, anyway, he was at a campaign event in Derry, New Hampshire, when uh, he said, quote, Anybody who can go down 3,000 feet in a mine can sure as hell learn to program as well. Anybody who can throw coal into a furnace can learn how to program, for God's sake, end quote. Now, aside from the fact that coal miners are typically not the ones throwing, <laughs> throwing the coal into the furnace, that is, uh, that's the end product of mining, but this is, a, John, this is not the first time that people have said this, is it? No, I mean, other major politicians have circa 2016 Hillary Clinton. And I, I think that's, I always have said that that's one of the reasons that she, she lost the election. I think that she forgot who she was talking to. And when you do these things and you say coal miners need to change their occupation to X, and in this point being coding, not only do you lose their trust, I mean, you become an enemy of theirs because. First off, coding we're going to talk about is not a real solution right now. And secondly, it just sounds like you're trying to take away their jobs. So this is this is not new. Right. It's not new. And part of the problem is that I think it misdiagnoses the problem, which we'll get into. But it's also just an oversimplification of a complex problem where 
it shows someone's lack of knowledge on the issue and on the region. And again, like I mentioned, we're going to get into that real, uh, real soon. But I think I do have to express my disappointment a little bit here with, uh, with Mr. Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, I like Joe. I do. I think that I think he did a good job as vice president. I think that he uh, he's been an effective leader over the course of his long career in the Senate. And it really uh, surprises me that working class Joe is running these old tired arguments that don't make any sense. And I, it was disappointing. Like, I don't know how else to say it, but it was disappointing. And I think it's kind of a funny contrast that the person who actually did have a good response to something like this was Andrew Yang, who is the former tech entrepreneur from California. <laughs> uh, so that's an interesting contrast there that we most certainly uh, um, did not see coming. But yeah, I was a, I was a little disappointed in our friend Joe Biden, um, and I hope he does better. He's welcome on this podcast anytime. Anytime. Anytime, Big Joe. John, you alluded to the fact that we were going to be talking about why this wasn't a realistic solution to the problem of coal miners losing their jobs. And that is the problem, actually, that we're speaking about. The fact that coal mining itself is in decline, the jobs are in decline, a lot of the companies are going bankrupt, it creates a huge problem for the miners that are still working and still making a living. And it's not something that we can just abandon and leave them to die on the vine. That's a un-american and b unproductive and c it's just an awful thing to do these are people that have worked their entire lives to help power the homes that you live in right now so what are we getting into well we're going to talk about why it is that this concept of teaching coal miners to code doesn't make sense and the way that we're going to illustrate that is actually by I'll call it a case study in uh, malpractice of job retraining maybe that's fair I guess we'll just dive into it. So the example that John was linked to that I, and that I'm referring to comes from a New York Times article that was written back, I want to say, in May 2019. I'll link to it. And it talked about an organization called Mind Minds, M-I-N-E-D, <laughs> M-I-N-E-S. Terrible. The, the worst possible name that I could think of. Golly, that's so bad. And you know that they were sitting there when they came up with this name in some corporate office building. They're thinking, oh, man, that is it right there. We nailed it with this name. I can only imagine that the same people who came up with App Podlatcha came up with this stupid name. <laughs> you watch your mouth. They were sitting in there. Look, they were there's sitting a in clear there. difference between quality naming and garbage. They were sitting in there. Ivory Tower of Podcasts looking down and going, oh, Appalachia? Let's just name it Appodlatcha. I don't know your time, but that sounds brilliant yeah, to actually, me. But, uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of sold on it now. Yeah. Well, hey, we'll, we'll leave it up to the people to decide. Uh, <laughs> but we're not going to do that with Mind Minds. Mind I can't even <laughs> say it. It's, who, whose idea was it? I'm going to call it Double M. All right. Please don't call it double M. <laughs> so weird. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call it M M. All right, call it M and M. M and M. All right, it's decided. M and M, aka Mind Minds, is a Pennsylvania-based nonprofit co-founded by a woman named Amanda Lotcher. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing that. A former tech consultant who worked in Chicago for a time, and they founded it under the premise that. Everyone can have a successful career in the tech industry. And so this person 
had a brother that was laid off in a mine in southwest Pennsylvania where she grew up, to her credit, and saw this as an opportunity to bring a new booming industry into these poor, downtrodden mountain folk in Appalachia. Now, John, do you think it was a successful thing? Well, first off, if you start out with that name, I'm just assuming you're going downhill from there. Um, but I'm going to guess, based off your tone, that it wasn't successful. Correct. Oh, thank you. I should, John, you I should be it. on Jeopardy uh, Greatest of All Time. <laughs> well, look out, Ken Jennings. All right, we got Big John. Um, uh, John, you, you are absolutely correct. And in fact, uh, that's the whole premise of this article. Oh. So, and partly this show. These people put together this organization. Their goal was to essentially retrain not just coal miners, but people in Appalachia that were looking for a better job that paid more, uh, that there places where there wasn't really any industry in parts of Appalachia, and in this particular example, West Virginia, they came in and they were offering initially a free 16-week coding boot camp, followed by a paid apprenticeship with a for-profit arm of the organization that was a software consultancy. And according to the article and according to the students who participated in these classes, they were told that they'd be paid to take the class. When you're looking at this and you're, you're someone who wants to try to find a better career that could, be, it could end up being lucrative, that could end up opening up a lot more opportunities than you may never had, this sounds like a great deal. Right? You know, this free course, you're getting paid to do it, and then they, they promise you a paid job afterwards. Sounds like a good deal. And the organization said that, quote, every single one of them will find work. That, to me, sounds like a job's guaranteed, John. Guaranteed. Let's talk about some of the people that decided to participate in this program. Some of these people quit their jobs or dropped out of school for the prospect of a stable, lucrative career by taking these classes and by taking advantage of the guaranteed jobs that would come out of it. So that's a huge risk and a lot of trust that you're putting into this program and this promise of a brighter future. If you look at some of the stories from the people that participated in this, one, one person skipped their honeymoon to take the class. A woman who was working at Dollar General, she worked for $10 an hour at the Dollar General and Gully Bridge and, and provided for herself. There, I mean, people were really sacrificing a lot in order to, to do this, and they put their hopes and they put their trust in this organization. One guy, uh, Ty Cook, he was a bank teller, he said it was, quote, something that would make me a worthwhile member of society. Now, that's something where you have a person who really wanted to make a living for themselves. They wanted to make a career for themselves, and they truly viewed this as an opportunity to do that. And that's what makes this whole situation so much more terrible. John, we mentioned before that something went wrong with this program. What went wrong exactly? Well, first off, um, we, we found out that Eminem, Mind Minds, lied. They didn't tell the truth. They, as you mentioned, they told these people, hey, if you come to our program, not only are we going to train you and get you a better job, but we're going to pay you while you do it. However, on the first day, they learned that they weren't going to be paid. So now 
some of these people are out of a job. They're doing what I would claim to be kind of a bogus training, um, and they're not being paid for it. So they don't have any income coming in. Second problem was, like I said, it was kind of bogus. There was It was poor instruction. Students were given an assignment and told, quote-unquote, Google it if they had questions. That's something that I that's something I tell my wife so I don't look stupid. Like that's a problem. <laughs> and if you're doing that as an instructor who claims to know what they're doing, then you've now not only cheated these people out of, you know, a better life, you've lied to the in my opinion, you've lied to the federal government because that's how you're funded. And third, there was no direction. Classes lasted much longer than 16 weeks. People ran out of money because we already talked about they either left jobs because they thought they were going to be paid or they already didn't have good paying jobs and probably took an hour's cut to be able to go to these classes. And so they ran out of money just like most people would. It was a really sad situation um, and one that shouldn't have happened. When you take a look at the organization, you can kind of start to see where the uh... – the cracks in the foundation start. Uh, some of the former staff that, that were interviewed for this described the lavish company culture and these bizarre gatherings where they had like endless tequila and everybody was getting drunk and they were spending all this money staying at the Trump Hotel in Chicago. So doing all this while back in West Virginia and in Pennsylvania and the other places where they've operated, there were quote-unquote instructors there telling people how to Google, basically, rather than teaching them how to actually code. And the biggest problem that came out of this was something that didn't come out of it, which was the jobs. There was a jobs guarantee with this. Now, in fairness to Double M, they dispute that, but from everybody who was interviewed for this, they said that there was a jobs guarantee at the end of this. And I can tell you for a fact that these people would not have given up their jobs, their day jobs, that they, that the livelihood that they were making for their families, including a lot of these coal miners who were giving up very well-paying jobs, they would not have done that if there weren't a jobs promise. So the the idea that the mine mines is disputing that is ridiculous. Only one person, one former West Virginia coal miner, actually finished the classes and got a job, and he was fired after 14 months. This disappointment is certainly all too familiar for Appalachians. Like, I guess... With Mayan minds, maybe I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say that when they started, maybe they had a clear heart and a clear conscience and they actually wanted to do some good, which is great. But what they did is they came into the region and they came into these places. They told people that this is some great new frontier that's really lucrative. It's going to be – we're going to start a revolution, an economic revolution that's going to help you out of poverty and just wove this beautiful tapestry of lies. And these people gave up their livelihood and they put a lot on the line financially and otherwise to do this and they were screwed. Mine minds defended themselves, and this is probably the most despicable part of this, I would say. They defended themselves by blaming the students, by blaming the people that quit their jobs, that went to these classes and that put in the work. The director was quoted as saying that progress is difficult in Appalachia, and with the current atmosphere in Appalachia, it being deeply rooted in a culture, that it makes it difficult. And she blamed the opioid epidemic, the poverty culture of the region, and mentioned hillbilly elegy. Hillbilly 
fucking elegy. <laughs> I mean, are we... So she held up the, the Holy Bible of J.D. Vance and proclaimed her innocence and proclaimed the gospel of the working class that if they just got, they just got rid of their pills and pulled themselves up by the bootstrap that they would also be the next Mark Zuckerberg. That's what's holding us back, Chuck. I mean, you heard it here first. That's, that's what she thinks. This, again, is just such a lazy argument and it's it's blaming the people who are actually the ones who were trying to do something you know better for themselves in my in my opinion this organization had no intention of ever helping the region they were in this to help themselves that's Again, that's my opinion, but I think the facts point to that. You had bad instruction, you didn't have any jobs uh, actually lined up, and you had somebody who I think no matter what was always going to blame the region. They were always going to say that the the people in the classes weren't good enough or that the region was um, crushed by the opioid epidemic. They were always going to do this. It was a payday for them. Let you know. Let's not call it anything that it wasn't. This isn't the first time this has happened, and sadly, it probably won't be the last. I like whenever you you say the you know airdrop in because that's really what they do. They come here, they exploit the region, and they leave. And then when people call them out on it, they just say, "Well, you know what I did was uh, was okay, and it was really the region's fault." And it, I hope they can live with themselves. I wouldn't be able to. Um, I think that this is. A disgusting tactic that is just unfortunately overused on the region. To quote uh, Elizabeth Cat uh, from her Belt magazine article about this, uh, she referred to them as new-collared grifters, <laughs> and I think that that is very, uh, um, very accurate and very on point. Um, I will also just say that, like, you know, there's no problem if there are well-meaning people and well-meaning groups that want to come into Appalachia and help, but don't just bust into the region and think that you know what the solutions are to problems that have been in existence for decades and that have been very complex for decades because the problem is not that Appalachians are stupid and can't figure out how to get out of poverty. That's not the issue. There's a mountain of issues, not the least of which has been industries that have exploited the region and left. So I just I wanted to say that because like I personally like I welcome people and groups that want to come to Appalachia and and make a meaningful impact and and help the region but do it the right way I think that that's where I come down on I'm, that, but, I'm with you um, I think I always say it the same way Appalachians are the nicest most welcoming people until you screw them over and then I wouldn't want to be on the other side of the fence because We'll let you in. We are more than welcoming. You know, it's that southern hospitality. But I tell you, if you, you know, if if you come in here to exploit us, then we're gonna have problems. And and I, I Appalachians are proud people. I mean, people want to shit on this region so much. Come to this region, you'll find out there's nobody there in this country that has more pride than than Appalachians. And and you said, you know, you telling people don't don't come to this region with a solution that that may not be, you know, fixated on actually helping this region. I say don't go to any area with 
these fake solutions. I don't care if it's if it's Appalachia, if it's Chicago, California, anywhere. These and we have to. I say this with, I guess, a grain of salt. We have to put more emphasis on our lawmakers doing things to stop this kind of stuff because it's still on them. But when they're allowing these things to happen, um, so I do hope that this is taught a lesson to the lawmakers, and I hope it's taught a lesson um, to some of these other organizations that are are looking to do this because. This new age, I always, I think it's... Okay, boomer. This is exploitative opportunism where essentially you you dangle this possibility in front of people and a region and all you do is exploit them. And it has to end. Hopefully it does. Um, this region will eventually, um, hopefully stop having it happen. Yeah. And so this is, I mean, my mind is one example of, of complete malpractice in all respects. Uh, I don't want to say that every effort to do this has a, has been exactly like that, but by and large, I think that they embody the flawed mentality of the whole teach minors to code trope. And we mentioned that people come in here with a savior complex that they can just bring these great tech jobs and it will work out and everyone will be grateful and it'll fix the problem of coal miners going out of work. But that's a massive oversimplification of what is essentially decades of coal miners being exploited and decades of people looking for solutions and for off-ramps to this dying industry and it just hasn't been found. So the idea that they're going to come in with very little prior knowledge and understanding and very little conversation with people from the region and think that they're going to fix the problem is a little bit ignorant, wouldn't you say? A little bit. Coal miners are the only occupation that people look at and say, boy, do I have something better for you. They, they and that's the thing is it's the, it's the only profession. We imagine walking up to an attorney Right. And going, look, I know you're doing well because I don't even know if we've mentioned this, but coal miners, make, they make good money. They're not going home broke. I mean, on I was watching Fox News the other day. I know. Please don't attack me. Um, I, I'll watch them all. You don't have to yell at me. I promise. Um, but on this instance, Fox News was on and they were talking about coal miners in Pennsylvania. And the person that they had on who was representing the coal miners actually discussed that underground coal miners in Pennsylvania can make a hundred thousand dollars a year. So on par with, you know, some attorneys in West Virginia even. So imagine I walk up to an attorney in West Virginia and say, look, I know you've got, you're doing pretty well, but have you heard about the Amazon fulfillment center and how you could get a better job there? <laughs> imagine this, you get to come to this huge facility, work your ass off for 12 hours. You can't unionize, but my God will pay you $12 an hour. Do you think that attorney's going to drop his briefcase, take off his suit jacket, and help Jeff Bezos become even more of a billionaire? Probably not. Stop doing this with coal miners. It's annoying and it's misleading. These are human beings who are trying to put food on the table, and it's getting old, 
and they make good money. Stop thinking that coal miners don't make good money. So you have to give them the ability to make as much money or close to it if you want to create real solutions. Yeah, uh, it's hard to tell a coal miner that's making sixty to a hundred thousand dollars a year that they should definitely quit their job and work at taking an entry level coding job that probably pays by the hour. That's definitely a deal I wouldn't take. But we are not all about complaining about the problems here on Appod Latcho. We are solutions oriented as well. So let's talk solutions because that's that's a pretty complicated subject, John. One of the issues that I have, though, is that nobody really asks what the miners want and what they care about. And I think first at the outset of this is that they need to be brought into this conversation because they're I mean, they're the people that we're talking about and they're the people who's like we're trying to find solutions for. So I rarely see any mention that miners were actually brought into the discussion when it comes to like all these job retraining programs. And I, I don't know about you. And if there are examples of that, please send them to us. But. I think that they need to be presented with options and not binary choices. Not a simple situation of learn to code or lose your job. And so what are some of those options that make sense, John? Uh, well, first off, I want to talk about something you just said. You said lose, learn to code or lose your job. But in the M&M uh, talk we just had, it was learn to code kind of and still lose your job. So I just wanted to point that out. But some of these solutions... Some of these solutions, and, and let me caveat all this by saying we don't think that there is one solution to this problem. If you if you looked at you're you are looking at an entire energy sector and saying, real quick, I can fix this. That's not true. No one can. Joe Biden can't. Hillary Clinton can't. Donald Trump can't. You can't fix this in one sweeping move. It has to be done over time and. This region, if you're from here, you know this. If you visited here, you know this. It's a very unique region. It's going to take different solutions for even different parts of the region. So let, let's make that very clear. Yeah, when, when, you look at, when you look at a region that's been so heavily reliant on one industry that's in a downward spiral and that's going to be, I don't want to say obsolete, but essentially obsolete in, in a number of years, and then you're you're trying to find a solution to change an entire economy. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. And you're right. There's not a simple solution. And I, I, I apologize to our listeners if they were looking for one. They're not going to find it here, and I don't think they're going to find it anywhere. But some things that have been suggested that I think at least merit some more attention is that where like certain states and certain regions, especially in Appalachia, where clean energy, oil, and gas – industry is feasible, I think it makes sense to start looking at what are the options that you can provide for coal miners that are going to be out of work. I know that not all energy jobs are created equal, and certainly there are some transferable skills and there's some that aren't. That's the nature with any job, especially any job that's specialized or that involves um, really like specialized work like coal mining, for example. There's not necessarily going to be a job that's going to be super transferable but what you can do is you can have a combination of state federal local governments either funding or coordinating efforts and then look at like your existing coal companies who owe an obligation to these miners to do something to help fund programs that that can actually meaningfully retrain miners 
and meaningfully provide a jobs guarantee. And that's the important part about a jobs retraining program. I think that you're seeing a lot of activity right now, especially in Appalachia, with the clean energy economy really starting to try to take shape. And I, look, I'm not an ex expert in that, and I don't have a lot of information on that right now. However, uh, we've put out an invite to a, a personal friend of ours who is actually working in that specific sector and working to help uh, with jobs training for coal miners and others who are out of work, in, especially in southern or southern West Virginia and other parts of Appalachia. So we're hoping in the future to have somebody on here to really talk um, in detail and talk with some experience on this. Well, I mean, I, I've always advocated for, to me, one of the solutions could be, and let's, we have to make this clear too, <clears throat> we have to draw businesses here. That I mean, first and foremost, we can't create solutions for for miners or Appalachians in general if we don't have businesses coming into Appalachia. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and and so we have to make that we have to make our region accessible, and we have to make it competitive. I, I think there's been this we've forgotten in the world. Um, that we have to be, we have to still be competitive. Um, the region of Appalachia struggled with economic development. We're seeing a little bit of an uptick, but we're still losing. I mean, look at West Virginia. We're losing a massive amount of population, and until you can't keep putting band aids on it, you have to be competitive. And I think one thing that would really draw some of these companies in, maybe it is new energy, maybe that is the solution. But what makes them want to retrain miners? What what will be a driving force? How about this? Tax incentives. If you retrain a miner and you put them to work, we'll give you a tax incentive to do that. That's something the state can do. I don't know why no one has thought of this. I thought I think it's a pretty simple solution to now let me say this. This is like one A of the solution with like 30 more steps that have to be taken. Like I said, this isn't a, a one-stop solution. It can't be. It's just not going to happen. But I do think creating tax incentives for businesses to do this would actually make them want to. I mean, why else? what else is a driving factor? You have to get on their level, and I think this is one way to do that. Right. And businesses that, that are local that understand the issue, I think, especially not exclusively, but especially, um, I think, I mean, I think that makes sense. And again, I will premise this by saying that if you, if you started this, um, episode hoping for some bold, like cutting edge solutions to this problem, that's part of the problem is that there aren't, and it's a complex problem. And John and I are sitting here and talking about this, and you all are sitting here and listening to this. But the people that are affected by this the most are the coal miners. And I think that we all owe it to them to come up with a solution to this that's meaningful, that honors the dignity of their work, and that gives them a real meaningful opportunity to towards a different career that they can be proud of. To recap with, with our discussion about solutions, what we can say is this. Any discussion about the future of coal miners' jobs, number one, has to involve the miners themselves. That is first and foremost, and that's the primary thing that needs to happen. 
coal miners need to be in this discussion because they're the ones that are going to be most affected by it. And number two, any retraining that happens has to be included with a guaranteed job at the end. That's not a silver bullet solution to retraining. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to solve everything, but any retraining that doesn't include a guaranteed job is a no-go. And we need to be looking at what the best industries are where we can have the most degree of success in Appalachia and where coal miners are actually able to do those jobs and willing to do those jobs. And it's something that is meaningful work. Those are the three things I think coming out of this discussion that we can look at and say need to be part of the discussion about solutions. But John, to pivot away from this and to wrap this episode up, I think you might have some beef. Is that true? Do you have beef this week? Beef, bitch, oh. Look, I'm not gonna lie. This week was pretty tame, and I was—that's th- always a good thing. Don't get me wrong, but I was a little disappointed, and I was worried. I mean, this was the first time that I was really worried about not having beef. But mm. by the graces of the West Virginia Senate, praise him. It dropped in my lap. I mean, this is the first time. I mean, I thought this was gonna be just. You know, you've got your your choice beef like Chuck, um, you know, like Chuck. The beef or the person? Here? <laughs> well, I'm gonna let the listeners decide. Uh, and then oh. and then you've got your filet mignon over here and your wagyu, which I mean, if you've had wagyu, congratulations, you've made it. But then you've got kind of the the mix. You know, you've got your blends. I think this is a blend because I think this is such. A hilarious issue that I don't even know how to take it serious, Chuck. I really don't. Um, so let, let's get into this because I want to. I want to first say that I do know the senator who proposed this. I have respect for him. I'm not sure why he's doing this. Um, I have some reason to believe a, a couple things, but let me explain what's going on. So I guess Senator Charles Trump. Uh, of the West Virginia Senate heard that I didn't have any beef this week and decided that he'd give he'd help me out because he he wrote a resolution. It's actually if you want to look it up, West Virginia Senate Concurrent Resolution Two, which formally requests Frederick County, Virginia, to consider becoming part of West Virginia. Boo! You know what? Wait, why you know, we'll do take we... him? Why not? More than Marion. <laughs> I think, and I, I told you before, I think I've got a couple reasons to believe. I think that Senator Trump just doesn't like odd numbers. That's really why I think he's doing this. He wants 56, not 55. I think that that is why he's doing this. Probably, maybe the other reason is because Virginia's doing pretty well economically, and I could only guess that Frederick County is right there with them. Uh, so it'd probably be a pretty big boost. Now, when asked why he did this, so Senator Trump actually is is arguing a legal issue on this because he believes that they that Frederick County, Virginia actually has the right to vote to become part of West Virginia or not because in 1862 there were three counties, Berkeley, Morgan, and Hampshire which were able to vote themselves into Virginia or into West Virginia, but Frederick County which was invited to participate Senator Trump doesn't believe 
they were ever given the opportunity to vote. I'm not sure if Senator Trump knows what year it is, but it is 2020, and this occurred in 1862. Do you think they would have <laughs> filed something in that time period if they wanted to become part of West Virginia? <laughs> At what point do you think that this is a good idea? It's not. It creates negative publicity for the state. We've had people in the past actually create resolutions to have parts of the state leave, and that was just as embarrassing. This reeks of desperation, and this reeks of somebody wanting national attention, because that's probably what will happen. It'll be another joke that is actually going to be played on West Virginia, um, and and people are going to make fun of it. Do you think, I guarantee you, Whitney Cummings right now is, is just salivating at this. I mean, she John Aslan. Actually, speaking of Whitney Cummings, I have to admit something. I just found out from one of our listeners that Whitney, Whitney Cummings came to West Virginia and visited. So shout out to her. I'm very happy to hear that. And she met with people. I think that's fantastic. Um, I'm going to just say she probably listened to the podcast, thought it was a good idea, and decided to take us up on that offer. Great to hear. Nice to know we're making a difference. Go back to this. <laughs> nice to know. But back to this. Chuck, do you want to hear the worst part about this? Do I have a choice? No. The Senate approved... Oh, damn it. The Senate approved the resolution. They approved Asked it. Asked and answered. They said, okay, <laughs> we'll listen to you, Senator Trump. And if they have this legal reason, why not let them vote? This will now go to the House of Delegates in West Virginia, and I, <laughs> I was hoping that this would be voted down, even though... It makes it makes the beef so much tastier that I I I just couldn't do it. I mean, this is a sad day that we have so much. We've talked about some of the issues in this region and in the state, and we're worrying about whether or not a county in another state should vote to become part of our state. Why can't we fix the fifty-five counties that we have now? It's because of things like this, and that's a huge issue. I, I hope <laughs> that this doesn't pass the House of Delegates because it'll be so embarrassing if it does. It's already embarrassing, but again, I know Senator Trump. I respect Senator Trump. I think this is a bad decision. It happens, um, but I do wish he would have pulled this off the floor rather than actually send it to a vote. As always, the beef is salty and it's fresh off the grill. Uh, that, was, that was beautiful, John. Thank you for that. John, uh, so you got you got a shout-out before we wrap this thing up. What do you got? A huge, a huge shout-out. Shout-out, I know I just um, played in a little bit to the legislature, but there is one person, and this will be the only time likely, that I give a shout-out to somebody missing the first week of the session. Delegate Sean Hornbuckle, who is a delegate in West Virginia, is missing the first week of session because he donated his kidney to his sister. Uh, she had a very, very uh, difficult disease that was killing her. Uh, luckily, Sean was a match. He stepped up. He did an amazing thing, and we are lucky to have people like Sean in office. Uh, I hope he heals well, and I'm, I'm sure he'll be back in no time. That's incredible, and good for Sean, and we hope that he does heal well and that all of that goes smoothly and according to plan because that's a, that's a huge sacrifice. And so we're proud of him for missing his first week of work. 
with what a what a great way to end this episode. That's a perfect way to end it on a high note. Thanks, as always, to our listeners for listening to Appod Latcha. If you aren't already, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Give us a rating and a review. Let us know how we're doing. Email us at appodlatch at gmail.com. And follow us on the social media channels, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, all those good things. Mountaineers. In the U.S. Army, you can make a choice to make your mark. With over 150 fields to choose from, join forces with us and take on anything. Ever wish for fuller lips? With Juvederm Lip Fillers, a licensed specialist can help you get the customized look you've been wanting. Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC can give your lips that boost of volume you've been wanting. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.